Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you ask them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. I was 12 years old, boarding a steamship to the United States with my family. We said goodbye to our home in the mountains of Lebanon. Will we ever come back here again? I'm scared, Mama. I'm not ready to go. I was about to take the biggest step of my life, across an ocean, with no idea what my future looked like on the other side. I was traveling with my mother, my older half-brother, and my two younger sisters. But within a few short years, I would lose all but one. Most of my family would never live to see the successes I'd accomplish through my arts and poetry. My name is Gibran Khalil Gibran. It was a bit of a mouthful for my adopted country, so I shortened it to Khalil Gibran. I will tell you my story of how I rebelled against power and religious authority, and how I was inspired to write my books, including The Prophet. Gibran is a man who accomplished quite a bit during his short life. He's believed to be the third best-selling poet of all time, behind William Shakespeare and Lao Tzu. Yes, he'll tell his story, but I'll be here when he leaves out some uncomfortable details. I was born in the mountains of Lebanon, in a town called Bashari, in 1883. Back then, Lebanon was part of the Ottoman Empire in the region known as Greater Syria. We were Maronite Christians, but religious differences didn't mean much to my family. My parents opened their doors to Muslims and Jews, anyone. It didn't matter to them. My mother, Camila, had been married twice before she met my father. Her first husband was a kind man who passed away shortly after their son, Putras, was born. Next, she married a rich man. That marriage only lasted a few weeks before it was annulled. But the annulment angered him. So when my mother married my father, the rich man gathered up the local clergy and tribal leaders in order to persecute him. And eventually, they succeeded. My mother always knew I was a strange child, but she never showed it. She allowed me to explore my impulses and inspirations. Sometimes, when it rained, I would strip off my clothes and run outside. The neighbors might have raised their eyebrows, but my mother didn't care. Once, when I was around four, I planted small pieces of paper in the soil and waited all year in hopes that I would be able to harvest my paper leaves. And I was always making art. When other kids were playing together, I was spending hours by myself over at the ancient monastery, sketching. My mother encouraged me to be myself. When she noticed my love of art, she gave me a book of the collected works of Leonardo da Vinci. 
This opened up a whole new world to me. I became obsessed. Since then, I've always felt that part of his spirit was lodged in my own. Now, my father. Well, he was not a great provider. He had a number of jobs, but they never lasted. Work wasn't his passion. Drinking was, and gambling. And when he got into debt, he made up for it by embezzling from his job. And it wasn't long before those local leaders turned up and threw him in jail. They seized our home and our property. I was only eight, and it was one of the most unsettling times of my life. No, 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 please, please, father, don't go. Mother, where are they taking him? Gibran's family was poor to begin with, but after his father was imprisoned, they became impoverished. They wanted us to starve. That's about the time my rebellion against religious leaders and political power started, and it never stopped. My mother was a rebel too. She taught me to always keep going and to never let anyone else tell me what to do. After all, that's what she did. When we were left to starve, she decided to move us all to the United States, even though society and the church demanded that we stay in Lebanon with my father. She sold everything we had to buy us a new life. And even when my father got out of prison and refused to go with us, she left him in Lebanon. Always keep moving, even if it means starting over. We started over in Boston. I remember how jarring I found the noise and the smell. Still, I came to love it. It was foreign, but familiar. We lived in a poor neighborhood, a ghetto, really. We called it Syrian Town. It wasn't as beautiful as the mountains of Bashari, but the Syrian bakeries and cafes and all the people speaking Arabic were warm reminders of home. In school, I met Arab, Jewish, Chinese, and Eastern European students. It was exciting to interact with people from different backgrounds. While Gibran was in school, his mother sold goods door to door. His older brother, Butrus, worked in a fabric shop, and his younger sisters, Sultana and Mariana, worked as seamstresses. But Gibran didn't have a job. He had other ideas. I could have gone to work as well, but I wanted to serve my family through art. I was still a teenager, but I believed I could make a living as an artist one day. I was showing real promise, at least according to Fred. Fred Holland Day. He was a photographer and he became my mentor. He was also openly gay. But I was meeting all kinds of new people, so what's the big deal? He was an interesting man. He was American, but he wore a turban and smoked a shisha. He was fascinated by the East. He sort of took me under his wing and introduced me to painting and photography, as well as literature, romance poetry, and Greek mythology. He also owned a publishing company, and he helped me sell my artwork as book covers. He invited me to art exhibitions and began introducing me to people in the art world. One of those people was a young woman named Josephine Peabody. She was a poet, and I found her instantly inspiring. 
Her poetry was mystical and exciting. We had an intellectual bond, and we became friends. But the truth is, she was my first love. Unfortunately, I can't say I was hers. I was only 15, and she 23. I wanted to pursue Josephine, but it was going to have to be from a distance. Because it was then, after only a few short years in the U.S., that my mother decided I should go back to Lebanon to learn Arabic. Why now? Just when I was starting to make friends and make a name for myself in the art community. It wasn't fair. We came to this country to have a better life, didn't we? So let me have one. Did Gibran's mother want him to learn Arabic, or was she worried about the influence the West was having on him? He had all these new friends that he never introduced to her, particularly the eccentric and openly gay artist Fred Holland Day. Despite being back on the other side of the world, I still carried a torch for Josephine. We sent letters back and forth, and I felt like we grew closer in the distance. Perhaps she would take my romantic intentions more seriously when I returned to the U.S., more mature. I had hoped she would be interested in the man I was becoming. My time in Beirut awoke something in me. I studied Sufi poetry and Arabic so that I could fully express myself in my native tongue. I even learned French. My writing was becoming informed by the oppression I was seeing all around me. I had witnessed fighting among Lebanon's religious factions. I saw a country that was becoming overwhelmingly unjust. On one side, the power of the corrupt clergy and Ottoman rulers. On the other, the extreme poverty of the people. I began writing angry pieces about these injustices. But schoolwork and my growing interest in politics didn't occupy all of my time. I was back in my homeland and keen to visit with friends and family. In the summer, I returned to Bashari. I met a young woman and fell madly in love. It was wonderful at first, but not for long. This love affair turned out to be disappointing, but it did eventually inspire my novel, The Broken Wings. It's a story of a young man who has a secret affair with a girl who is engaged to a rich man. They're discovered, and she is confined to her house and dies in childbirth. That's the novel, anyway. I don't know what happened to the real girl. That summer, I also saw my father. That didn't end much better. We bickered. You're drunk. You don't understand. We're not the same. You're not listening to me, father. I was discovering that we were just too different. I had become more educated and cosmopolitan, and he was the same ill-tempered drunk. That was the last time I ever saw him. After I graduated, I came back west, but not as far as the United States. I went to Europe instead to study art. There is evidence that suggests the real reason Gibran went to Europe was because his arguments with school authorities and his anti-establishment ideas led to his being excommunicated from the Maronite Church and sent to exile in France when he was 19, although officially his excommunication and exile would not come until years later. 
It was the dawn of a new century, and I was determined to make a name for myself. But that would have to wait. I soon received word that my sister Sultana had tuberculosis, so I immediately boarded the ship for Boston. In April of 1902, she died. She was only 14. I was devastated. My family leaned on each other for comfort to hopefully heal together, but there was no time for that. The following year, my brother also died of tuberculosis. Later that year, my mother died of cancer. Only my sister, Mariana, and I survived. This was a pain that would never heal. I also had to get over the fact that my love for Josephine Peabody was an unrequited love. One by one, his family was dying, and his first love denied him. During this difficult time, she Brown was searching for some kind of direction, and he turned to spirituality to overcome his pain. There was a spiritual movement going on among the people I knew in Boston, diverse religious teachings, reincarnation, Sufism, even aspects of the Christianity I grew up with helped me to understand the world as I carried on. Seven years after we moved to the U.S. to start over, now a grown man, I found myself starting over. My sister, Mariana, worked as a seamstress to support me, paying our rent and making my meals while I pursued art full-time. Every day I sketched, I was determined to have my work recognized. And then, in 1904, I had my first big break, my own art exhibition. A gallery full of my drawings and an audience. Did I sell any drawings? Yes, but more importantly, I met someone. Someone who would have an incredible impact on the next 20 years of my life. Mary Haskell. It would be more fair to say Mary Haskell had an impact on the rest of Gibran's life, not just the 20 years that she supported him financially. That's what every artist needs, someone to champion their work, someone who recognizes the inspiration that drives the artist to toil for countless hours. And if this person happens to be able to keep a roof over your head, even better. She was 30 and I was 21. She was not rich, but she supported causes she believed in, and I was one of those causes. The nature of their relationship was ambiguous. Yes, she loved his work and was a great patron of his, but there was more to it. It straddled friendship and romance in an odd way. Our friendship was so intense, it often drifted into romance. And there, it languished. We weren't meant to be lovers. As strange as it sounds, I think we both got a great deal of satisfaction sharing in my artistic development. Soon, my desire to create went beyond the realm of visual art. I began writing again. The thing about these two sides of me is that they weren't always complementary. I sketched thousands of portraits, usually to convey beauty. But my writing was about rage, frustration, and revolution. It was political, and I soon gained a following of Arab Americans. I wrote dozens of articles and a number of books in the next few years, all in Arabic. 
there was Nymphs of the Valley and Spirits Rebellious, which promoted women's rights and was critical of religious authority. The same religious authority that threw my family into upheaval back home. In Lebanon, Spirits Rebellious made a big splash. Church and state officials burned it in the streets of Beirut. They called me a heretic and said the book was dangerous to the peace of the country. I was excommunicated from the Maronite church and was exiled from Lebanon, which did nothing to disprove my arguments and was not terribly inconvenient as I no longer lived in Lebanon. (laughs) Whether Gibran was exiled at age 19 or 25, he ended up in France. And who paid for it? Mary Haskell. Mary and I continued to write each other while I was in Paris. And something shifted as if the acts of reading and writing letters unlocked a hidden part of our relationship. Each and every one of us must have a resting place somewhere. The resting place of my soul is a beautiful grove where my knowledge of you lives. Paris at the turn of the century was a wild flurry of inspirations, ideas, conversation, and culture for an art student. The only thing I didn't like about school was attending it. The academy was a bit strict in its devotion to technical training, and I didn't have technical prowess. I had always relied on just kind of having a feel for art. So I left the academy, but I stayed in Paris, After all, what better art school is there than the city of Paris? I visited museums and exhibits. I sketched models. I spent time with artists like Auguste Rodin. There were women. There was wine. Although I always had a preference for Arak. It's the same kind of liquor that my father used to drink too much of. And I'll admit, sometimes I drank too much as well. While in Paris, I also met a Lebanese writer by the name of Amin Rehani. He was one of the early advocates for Arab nationalism. There was still no unified Arab state in the Middle East, and resentment was growing over the Ottomans' control of the region. Talking to him reminded me of what life was like growing up in Lebanon and what my country and my family had gone through. After two years in Europe... I returned to Boston in 1910 with a different kind of education. I had been meeting with notable people to draw their portraits. The poet W.B. Yeats, the actress Sarah Bernhardt, the psychologist Carl Jung. But there was one person who stood out above all the rest, Abdul Baha, the leader of the Baha'i faith. He had spent years in exile, and now in his late 60s, he was touring the West to spread the ideas of his faith, the idea that all humanity is united and all religions have value. Now, these are ideas that I had held since my childhood, but when I expressed them, they seemed like a rebellion against the corrupt and oppressive powers back home in Lebanon. When Abdu'l-Bahá expressed them, they felt like fundamental truths. The night before I met him, I was so excited, I couldn't sleep. Abdul Baha spoke to me about the equality of the two genders and the unity of all prophets. His ideas inspired me for the rest of my days. When I drew his portrait, I said, for the first time I saw a form noble enough to be a receptacle 
for the Holy Spirit. And let's not forget about Mary. Now that Gibran was back in Boston, their romance had a chance to flourish. My romance with Mary was a bit odd. When we were apart, I longed for her. But when she was near, I wanted to be apart. This was unfair to her, but we both had trouble defining what we meant to each other. I owed her so much. She was my benefactress, my promoter, my friend, my lover. I even proposed more than once. She said no, then yes, and after a lot of discussions and a lot of tears, no once more. <laughs> Mary, Mary, dry your tears. I was 29 and she was 37, and she believed she was too old to get married. She offered to be my mistress, but I declined. I would have many affairs, but not with her. Like I said, our romance was a bit odd. And after this, there was really no reason to stay in Boston. And New York was where everything was happening culturally. So I took my drafts and a copy of Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra and moved to New York. But he and Mary continued to exchange letters. She even came to visit and gave him $5,000. And once again, their relationship would evolve into something new. Mary's adulation was just as important to me as her money. Yes, she paid my rent, but none of the exciting things happening in my life would have been possible without her emotional support. And she came to occupy another role in my life, that of editor. She was adamant that I should start writing in English to find a larger audience. I spoke English, but I didn't have enough command of the language to be a great writer. And she offered to help by correcting drafts and editing revisions. My time in New York was intense and prolific. I wrote and painted more than any other period of my life. In 1912, I published the novel Broken Wings, that tragic love story set in Lebanon. It was more than a story. It was an act of protest against women's oppression. Some people criticized my writing for not fitting into classical Arabic literature but my writing reflected the Arabic that people actually spoke, in Lebanon and even in South Boston and New York. People like my family, who came to the U.S. to escape the Ottomans and worked as peddlers or opened their own shops. I felt that classical Arabic was stagnant, and I wanted my writing to come alive. A few years later, I wrote a poem called You Have Your Language and I Have Mine. You have of the Arabic language whatever you wish, and I'll have what pleases my thought and emotions. You have its words, and I'll have its hidden powers. You have its preserved stiff corpse, and I'll have its soul. You have its dried-up rules of grammar, and I'll make of it melodies that echo in the mind, and overwhelming dashes of affection that calm the senses. When I was in Boston, I had joined the Golden Link Society, a radical group advocating for Syrian liberty from the Ottomans. And when I say Syrian, I mean Syria and Lebanon. After I moved to New York, I continued to advocate for this cause. And then the Great War broke out. Lebanon suffered, although there was no combat there. 
They were already some of the poorest people in the world. But now the Ottoman rulers were taking their food to feed their troops. People were starving. And then the locusts came. The swarms were so thick they darkened the sky. The locusts devoured crops, and more people starved. The famine killed half a million in the region. In Lebanon, 200,000 people died, about half the population. What can be done for those who are dying? Our lamentations will not satisfy their hunger, and our tears will not quench their thirst. What can we do to save them between the iron paws of hunger? As the war ended, there was a feeling of optimism that things would improve for my people. The Ottoman Empire collapsed and I was so full of hope, I drew a sketch called Free Syria and it ran on the cover of an Arabic language magazine in New York. But there was no Free Syria. The British and the French now split the region between themselves and what would later emerge as Lebanon passed into the hands of France. The Arab nationalist movement had stalled. I was heartbroken and frustrated seeing what was happening to my people on the other side of the world. Gibran decided to throw himself into his work. During the late 1910s, he held numerous art exhibitions. He wrote dozens of articles for the Arabic magazines like Al-Fanun. He not only published the books Broken Wings and A Tear and a Smile, but began to publish his English writings. Mary had encouraged me to not simply translate my Arabic pieces, but to write new English works. And so, I was once again starting over. I began working on a book called The Madman, which explored mental illness and how society and the church dealt with it. Mary was my editor, and I felt so blessed to have her. She was determined to make me into an English writer. I sent her drafts, and she corrected spelling, suggested words, and contributed ideas to every page. She even tried to learn Arabic to help me better express my ideas. When Mary visited, she said I never even stopped to eat. She worried I was too thin and that I only drank coffee and smoked cigarettes. Gibran's output was incredible. For a few years, he published multiple magazine pieces every month, in addition to his own books and art. But his prolific work schedule began to take its toll on his health. I did become ill quite often. When I was about 37, I was diagnosed with exhaustion. My doctor told me to rest for six months. Six months, no working, no exertion of any kind, just eating, drinking, and resting. That wasn't easy. But when it was finally over, I began working on a piece I had been drafting for a number of years. It was something that would still take three more years to complete, but it was the book that would come to define me. I poured a lifetime of influences into it. The ideas of Da Vinci, Rodin, Nietzsche, Blake, Christianity, Islam, Sufi spirituality, the Baha'i faith. 
I once said I had been working on this book for a thousand years. It was an English book of prose poetry called The Prophet. It tells the tale of a prophet, Al-Mustafa, who has spent 12 years in exile. And now, as he prepares to return home, the locals ask him about his outlook on the world. And he delivers 26 sermons. When love beckons to you, follow him. Though his ways are hard and steep, and when his wings enfold you, yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. It reads like a Bible, lines and verses, metaphors and similes. It contains many paradoxes. Joy is pain, waking is dreaming. It was written as I was dreaming of my homeland, but I could not have been further away. It was inspired not only by the spiritual giants of the world, but also by the loves of my life. Yes, Mary, my generous friend and editor, but also Josephine Peabody, my first love when I was 15. She once called me her young prophet. She died the year before the book was published, and I dedicated it to her memory. It was published in 1923. The critics weren't terribly impressed, but it was popular, really popular. It sold out its first printing in the first month, and more in the second month. It continued to surpass its own sales records as time went on. Finally, thanks to the Prophet, for the first time in 20 years, I was able to support myself. I no longer needed my dear Mary to keep a roof over my head. In the years that followed, my celebrity grew. Some called me a philosopher. Others had political aspirations for me. I dreamed of returning home and being an inspirational figure to my people. The people of Lebanon will never be free until we have the right to rule ourselves. But Gibran stayed in the US. He was not a politician. He used the skills he had and wrote pieces critical of Lebanon's rulers. I wrote. I had more books to write, so I continued to work. And he drank. His sister apparently sent him gallons of arak during the U.S.'s period of prohibition. My mother was my guiding light. I admired her work ethic and contempt for authority. She toiled and sacrificed to provide a better life for her children. I think, at my best, I have inherited those things I admire about her, and my heart is full because of it. But I am also my father's son, and like him, I was drawn to liquor, especially in the years following The Prophet. I still wrote, I published three more books, including The Earth Gods and Jesus, the Son of Man. But it was difficult to continue working when I kept falling ill. The doctor said I had an enlarged liver. They again told me to rest, this time for a whole year. Having to stop writing was more painful than any illness. I knew I had a work inside me even greater than the prophet, and I needed to get it out. But I never did. 
Gibran Khalil Gibran died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1931, when he was 48. His most renowned work, The Prophet, continues to sell. Sales reached their apex in the 1960s as the book gained a following in the hippie community. All the royalties from The Prophet go to his hometown of Bashari, where he's buried. There, in northern Lebanon, is the Gibran Museum, converted from the ancient monastery where he used to sketch as a child. It houses his tomb and 440 pieces of his work, including his art and manuscripts. For what is it to die but to stand naked in the wind and to melt into the sun? And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered? Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountaintop, then you shall begin to climb. And when the earth shall claim your limbs, then shall you truly dance. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is director Dave Shumka, series producers Lauren Berkowitz and Michael Tanko Grand, co-producer Jody Camilleri, executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Dave Shumka. Khalil Gibran is played by Michael Benyeur. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Additional editing by Dave Shumka. Sound engineered and recorded by Vaudeville Sound. Associate producer, Nessa Arif. Translation by Abdullah Al-Masalam. Research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Halo Sudani is Al Jazeera's senior copy editor. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer of podcasts. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.